This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. Our friend Guy Benson joins now. He's a Fox News contributor. He is the politics editor at townhall.com, author of End of Discussion. Guy, great to have you. Hello, Buck. How are you? Good, good, man. Good to to hear from you. Uh, Let's... Uh, let's talk a bit about the Supreme Court nominees that Trump is considering. You have a piece up on townhall.com right now that lists where we are here. It, it, was it, it was three names and then there were two? Is that where we are? Well, that was what we heard, but I'm not sure that that's exactly accurate necessarily at this point. So there were a few different reports floating around over the last couple of days. One of them came from Politico which said basically, yeah, they're, they're down to two. Um, but I ended up bumping into Leonard Leo, who is a legal scholar, um, a law professor, Federalist Society guy who has been uh, an advisor to the Trump administration and the Trump transition on Supreme Court questions and this whole nomination process. I ran into him yesterday uh, at Fox in the green room in D.C., and I said, hey, um, I saw there's, in addition to the Politico story, in which Leo was quoted several times, uh, there was a CBS News report that it was down to just two names, and that William Pryor, who's sort of a, a rock-ribbed uh, conservative justice who had been, or jurist, who had been filibustered by Democrats during the Bush administration, eventually got through on a very close vote, uh, CBS had reported that he was sort of out of the running, and it was down to two other potential candidates. I asked Leo if that was true, and he sort of shook his head no, and he said that he thought that was, quote, a stretch. So as far as I know, based on the publicly reported information and based on my conversation with Leo, who seems like a pretty well-positioned guy to be in the know, there are still three names as finalists on the table. Although I'll just add parenthetically, Buck, that we're talking about Donald Trump, so you can't necessarily take any of this reporting to the bank. There could be a dark horse and a surprise uh, in the wings, but I think based on what we know, it will likely be one of these three. And what do we know about the three? Well, we know that. So, so you've got William Pryor, um, who's a hardcore conservative. You have Neil Gorsuch. I'm not exactly hundred percent sure how to say some of these names, but it's a uh, G O R S U C H. Um, he is, on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals based uh, out in Colorado. And then there's a 3rd Circuit Court of Appeals judge, Thomas Hardiman. Um, So those are the three. Um, Based on what I've read, I've read a little bit on SCOTUS blog and a few other analyses. I also talked at length 
with Leo, uh, Leonard Leo, about uh, the other two. Because I think William Pryor is a relatively known commodity. He was at the center of the big judge battles of the two mid-2000s under Bush, like 2004, 2005, with the filibusters and the Gang of 14. He was one of those controversial people that was being blocked uh, you know, endlessly by the Democrats, and, and eventually the Gang of 14 uh, resolved that situation. Of course, subsequently, Harry Reid blew up the filibuster, so things have changed since then. But to give you a sense of prior, uh, he once led a prayer publicly, which ended with the pleading to God. He said, please, God, no more suitors. Um, no meaning uh, Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices who sort of go wobbly and lefty once they reach the Supreme Court. Uh, So I don't think it's particularly ambiguous about what type of justice uh, prior would be. So then if you're a conservative who wants, you know, a a strong sort of, you know, constitutionalist on the bench, do you have any reason to be concerned about if if Gorsuch or Hardiman gets the nod? Um, Again, based on I am not a hardcore court watcher. I don't have in-depth knowledge, but I've done some homework on this and had some conversations. I don't get the sense that any of these three are in any danger of being a future David Souter type of justice. They have, at this point, pretty substantial judicial records. Uh, There's a paper trail, there's opinions, and they're all consistently uh, constitutionalist conservatives. And the one thing I would say is that Gorsuch, the more I hear about Gorsuch, the more I, I like him. Uh, again, he's on a circuit court based out in the Mountain West, uh, the 10th Circuit, and he has been compared many, many times to Justice Scalia, not just because of his judicial philosophy, but also because he's apparently an excellent, brilliant writer um, who writes very colorful, powerful opinions, which Scalia was famous for. So if you're looking for someone who's just sort of like sort of a, a second coming of Antonin Scalia, you can never replace the great man. But Gorsuch seems to be um, – would be, I think, a, a really good selection. And I should also add he's 49 years old. He's under the age of 50. Of the three, they're all young. They're all under 55. He's the youngest. So if this actually goes through, if this happens, it's something for conservatives to celebrate. I know that there's, and Guy, you were very open about how you felt during the uh, the primary and the general about the concerns you had uh, with the Trump presidency. I, I feel like every conservative I know, based on what we know about these three choices, if it's one of those choices, has got to say, well, at least that's a good thing. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I have a number of friends who are, similarly disposed towards Donald Trump as I am, I ended up not being able to actually hold my nose and vote for the guy. I just couldn't do it. Um, Of course, I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton either. But for those who were sort of anti-Trump conservatives, ended up voting for him over and over again, the justification that I heard was Supreme Court picks. And it was a justification that I completely understood and on some level agreed with. We knew that Hillary Clinton would pick bad, liberal, you know, progressive, breathing, living Constitution-type justices. And there was at least a significant hope that Trump would keep his promise on putting, on, putting conservatives on the bench. And so if that is what he does, 
Uh, I'll be the first person in line to praise him. In fact, I, I made this pledge on Greg Gutfeld's show on Fox just before the new year. If Trump appoints a young constitutionalist to the Supreme Court, I will I will put on one of those goofy red baseball caps for a day uh, because this is such an important issue. And the, the list of names, 20 some odd names that Trump had put out looked pretty good to me overall. I've been advocating for Senator Mike Lee. I thought he was uh, would have been an excellent choice. I still believe that. But again, of these three names, they're all consistent judicial conservatives uh, with established records all under the age of 55, well-respected folks. Um, you know, I'd be I'd be very happy with any of them. What are your thoughts on the latest uh, immigration and security measures, Guy? Well, I, I, I want to see sort of some of the details. And again, these are executive orders, some of which uh, Charles Cook at National Review is writing about this a little bit. Some of this stuff is just putting in writing, we intend to enforce laws that already exist. Um, and I think some of it's just kind of a declaration. I'm not saying that there's no legal weight to these things, to their presidential executive orders, but um, to some extent, I think these are also kind of messaging documents on some level, with the president coming out very early on in his term and saying, hey, remember all that stuff I said during the campaign and the, the major themes on policy that I would talk about? I meant it, and here I'm going to start codifying some of it, at least at a preliminary level, um, with some you know, presidential imprimatur. Uh, so the fact that he's, you know, the, the wall and taking a look at pausing the refugee influx from certain countries that have issues with uh, terrorism and could be difficult to vet. I mean, none of these should be surprises to anyone. Uh, these were common refrains during the campaign. And, you know, obviously I want to make sure that we take a look at these executive orders and make sure that they are uh, legal and constitutional. I, the beef with Barack Obama and his executive orders was never that he was doing too many of them in terms of a raw numbers game. It, the numbers don't matter. What matters is, does is he acting within his authority, or is he usurping authority that is under the Constitution, delegated to other branches, particularly Congress? That was the crux of conservatives' critiques of President Obama. So with liberals saying, oh, all of a sudden, all of a sudden Republicans are fine with executive orders, it was never the existence or even the number of executive orders. It was the content of the order. So that's what we need to be consistent about and make sure that Trump doesn't overstep his bounds. Um, but, you know, again, what's going to mostly sway this stuff ultimately is going to be legislation. And the good news for Donald Trump is he's got a Republican Congress uh, prepared probably to move significantly on a number of his agenda items. And I'd imagine that's a significant uh, topic of conversation, recurring topic of conversation at the party's retreat, uh, which is underway right now in Philadelphia. Guy Benson is townhall.com's politics editor. He is also a Fox News contributor and author of End of Discussion, available on Amazon.com right now. Guy, always a pleasure, my friend. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Buck. Talk to you soon. Sponsor this hour is SoundToShop.com. SoundToShop is the place to go, the place you can trust to handle the process of buying a silencer quickly and correctly. They submit lots of these forms. They know exactly what they're doing, and they'll make sure that your form gets processed as quickly and efficiently as possible. And you can pick out from their fantastic selection. They've got great prices, 
wonderful customer service. This is the place to go for a silencer for your firearm. Silencershop.com allows you to simply pick it up at a local dealer. No transfer fees and no shipping. So check it out, team. Silencershop.com. Again, that is silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. And we will be right back. Rex Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. You are listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Team, we're joined now by Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow for National Security Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Peter, really appreciate you calling in. Good to be with you. Uh, all right. Can we start with the uh, Trump executive order on refugees, the pause in refugees? He hasn't signed it yet, right, but is saying oh, yeah. he will? What do you think about all this? Well, I mean, it, we, there's a draft floating around, uh, and I'm, uh, I have a, an op-ed on my screen right here, and I'm waiting to see when it's happened. And I, I heard it was going to happen yesterday, and then today, and maybe tomorrow, and then next week. So to my knowledge, it has not been, it has not been signed. And what it really is, it seems to me, is to be taking a pause uh, to review all the programs for entry into the United States from some troubled parts of the world, you know, Syria. Um, in North Africa, um, and and including a number of countries. And it doesn't say it's going to end up this way, but he's basically asking for his uh, his lieutenants to go through and look at the policies and the programs and the procedures to make sure that we don't have folks who would do us harm get into this country. What do you say to those who will, will call this both uh, ineffective and, yes, they will say it, un-American, that a pause in refugees from, I think it's seven countries, would fall into those two categories. I'm sure you've heard that opposition already, Peter. What's your take on that? Well, I I think it's ridiculous. I mean, just putting, you know, just a pause to check to make sure we're doing everything we need to do. Now, the draft I've seen, which may not be the final draft, you know, talks about things like getting biometrics in there. So somebody can't come into into the United States under using some sort of disguise or bad documents. Um, it, it, you know, it looks at enforcing, you know, visa programs to make sure that nobody nobody comes in here. I mean, I think what they're worried about is what is they've seen in Europe, where some of the attackers, the terrorist attackers we've seen there, have come in with the migrant flows, have come in posing as refugees, uh, and I think the president wants to stop that. I mean, we're in we're in unprecedented times here, and I would want people to look at that. And what the president's doing is totally defensible, in my view, especially as you look at the Islamic State, and this is one of the things I'm trying to point out in my Boston Herald column. I mean, this ISIS is in crisis. There's a lot of pressure on it in Mosul. There's a lot of pressure on it in Raqqa. Um, It's going to splinter, and all these thousands of foreign fighters are going to go somewhere. Uh, You know, probably some of them are going to stay and fight, uh, trying to find uh, places in Syria and Iraq where they can do that. Others are going to try to return home. 
A lot of them are. What are the actual changes that you've seen in the draft, Peter, with regard to extreme vetting, as it's now being referred to by pretty much everybody? Yeah, well, they're they're talking about doing that, and the president's really just asking for a report. You know, I mean, this is an eight-page document. The one I've seen, like I said, I could be behind the power curve here. This is the one that's floating around. I'm not sure how it got out out of the administration, uh, and I, but it seems to be reasonable, and it's it's somewhat legalistic. Uh, you know, in fact, to run down the eight countries or seven countries they're talking about, you have to go to two different sets of documents, laws, uh, to to run those down because those countries are not mentioned not mentioned at all. So what he's really doing is asking for recommendations on this. Uh, you know, how do we go? What's the what are the best practices for doing this? And you know, here's 90 days and get back to me and let me know uh, what you what you're thinking at that point. So. Uh, you know, I think it's, it seems very reasonable uh, to me, considering the environment that we're that we're operating in. I mean, we is there an argument really... that you think could? I'm sorry, Peter. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, please. I was just going to say, is there an argument to be made that by making the vetting procedure better, it opens up the door to safer and perhaps even more effective refugee intake in the future, right? So that the next time a crisis breaks out, we're like, well, these are the procedures, we know how to do this, and we're not worried about infiltration by terrorist groups? Or do you think that's getting a little a little ahead of the skis? No, I mean, why, why, why would you be against better policies, programs, you know, procedures, or be, better practices? I mean, you know, this, this could be, you know, that we, this, I doubt this scourge of terrorism is going to disappear overnight with, you know, the fall of ISIS. Al-Qaeda is still out there. They're going to want to fill that, they're going to want to fill that space. But there's, there's other things. I mean, this could, you know, apply to criminals. It, it could apply to, to others. I mean, illegal immigrants. I mean, there's all sorts of things. I mean, my understanding, I'm not an expert on immigration, but my understanding is that not all illegal immigrants come over the border. They, some of them fly in. I mean, I have to come over some sort of border, but I mean, they're not coming over the southern border. They can, they're flying in. That's, that's what, I mean, I'm not sure if that's correct. I've heard that. Um, so, you know, this is, you know, getting better on the entry system uh, and exit system for the United States, I think, is, is, is worthwhile looking at. And we have a new president in. I mean, this is a new, this is a new chapter. And I think if I were taking over uh, the, exec, the Oval Office, I'd want to have a lot of programs looked at to make sure that, that they're supporting and advancing American interests. There is no uh, th- there is no real constitutional issue here, right? Uh, you hear people say that as well that this is against American values and this is presidential overreach. We the president can decide for national security reasons that any uh, foreign alien person is barred from the country, and there's a longstanding history of that. Actually, this is not new. Well, I I'm not a constitutional scholar. I don't know if you are, Buck, but you know I I think you know I play one on radio. Yeah. Well, a lot of these uh, a lot of these documents start out with the with the phrase by the authority vested in me as president by the Constitution and laws of the United States of America. Um, you know, people will look at this. They're going to spin it any way they want. And they will. Right. I mean, they're already spinning it. We haven't even seen the final document. I'm you know, I'm, I'm having a, a little reluctant to even talk about it because we haven't seen it. And I'm not sure the draft copy I've seen is the most the most recent one. Uh, but, yeah, people are going to people are going to people are going to say that. I mean, they may be elements. There may be issues here that they're brought up in the uh, judicial system. Uh, but that's our system, right? We're we're open to a debate. We're open to you know making sure that we're you know protecting and advancing American interests. And so I don't think anybody should be uh, should be afraid of that. And that's that's part of the American system and what makes it great. So we're going to have a piece to read of yours up on the Boston Herald soon. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, on this issue, depending on when they release this thing, because I do want to make sure that I'm correct. But my the, the thesis I'm saying is, look, this is defensible considering what we're doing, what we're dealing with in the world. 
uh, and the countries when you think when you think about them. I mean, you know, there's Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen. You know, Sudan is on the state sponsors of terror list as well as Iran. We know what's going on in Syria. We know what's going on. We know what's going on in Iraq. Uh, Libya is another country listed on there, and that's that's a mess right now. You have ISIS. You have Al Qaeda. You have a civil war. Uh, some of these folks are coming from North Africa into Europe and places like that. So I'm just saying, you know, take a step back and look at what we're dealing with from a national security point. And I, I think people will see this as very, a very defensible a move by the president. Peter Brooks is senior fellow for national security affairs at the Heritage Foundation. He has a piece already up, Donald Trump's troubled world on day one, bostonherald.com, and look out for his next one. Peter, really appreciate you joining. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for having me. Uh, 888-900-3393 team. See, see the way that Peter said thanks? It was like cheerful and happy, like he was thankful. I mean, Charles Cook is like my English brother from another mother, but we got to get him to get a little little enthusiastic in that last little soundbite there. All right, team, more coming. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, there's not been much coverage of this at all. I think this is fascinating. You have ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. As of uh, two days ago, there are all these reports that he was critically injured in an airstrike in northern Iraq. This courtesy of the Daily Mail. Uh, They have ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi said to have been critically injured in an airstrike. Comes amid reports of a, a fanatic in charge of executing... Women has been killed. Abu Abdel Rahman killed by unknown gunman in Mosul, security source claims, and he was assassinated by gunman who killed him right on the spot. So if it is in fact the case, as it seems to be here, that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was injured, I mean, this is the most high-value target that we currently have in the fight against the Islamic State. Now, I know it, it isn't saying that he's dead. It's saying he's critically injured. But this seemed to pass without any press attention, or I shouldn't say any because I'm reading news reports on it, but with, with minimal press attention. And I have to wonder, when are we going to switch to some of these national security issues that involve our troops on the front lines fighting Iraq and Afghanistan? That is still happening. We have troops in harm's way in both countries. You've got Iraqi troops... Uh, doing a bul- the bulk of the fighting in Mosul, and this has been underway for many weeks now. And Mosul is a city that is bisected by the Tigris River. And the eastern part of Mosul, they've thought, would be the less heavy fighting. The western, the western bank of the Tigris, the western part of Mosul, is where it is more likely that there will be uh, even higher casualties per square block, that the fighting will intensify. And the Iraqi government, with this 100,000-person force, seems to be in a position where it can continue on as is and will take back this territory, but at considerable cost. This is a huge battle that's underway in the Mosul crucible. And there's 
not much attention being paid to any of this. I mean, the fighting to retake Mosul from the Islamic State is, is slow, it's difficult, it's, it's bloody. And here we are months into this campaign with over 100,000 Iraqi security forces and, and militia starting out around the city. And we finally have the eastern portion largely in government hands. Remember, this is the fight against ISIS. Trump always talks about how he's going to destroy ISIS. He's going to take it right to him. He's going to make sure that we annihilate radical Islam and the Islamic State is now the most visible manifestation of uh, jihadism in the world. And we've got Trump. I'm sorry, we've got uh, Mosul slowly finding its way back into the hands of the Iraqi government. You read the stories from reporters who are on the front lines who are witnessing all of this, and there are people who, when they come out of their homes, they are blinded temporarily by the sunlight because they've been hiding in completely dark rooms with no windows or in basements. They're hiding from the Islamic State thugs who will go house to house and murder people who are suspected of insufficient loyalty to the collapsing Islamic State. They stay away from windows because they don't want to be hit by shrapnel. They don't want to get hit by an errant bullet. And there's a there's a lot of street to street fighting that's going on uh, between the Iraqi forces and the Islamic State fighters. Um, and retaking the city has been uh, has been a very difficult slog for the Iraqi military with the U.S. playing a very uh, a, a much less visible role, but a, an essential one. There are U.S. special forces who are working right alongside some of these Iraqi units, and they're helping with airstrikes. U.S. airstrikes have proved essential in this campaign. One of the major tactics uh, that the Islamic State really honed in the last couple of years is the usage of of vehicles in complex maneuvers to knock down barriers and then bring in a large explosive payload in the back of a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device, a VBIED or an SVBIED, if there's the driver still in it, which usually there is. And that's been the biggest, the, the biggest problem that the forces in Mosul have run into. You can shoot a driver, but if you're shooting him when he's 50 or 100 feet away and he's got 1,000 pounds of explosive in the trunk and shrapnel, well, the, the whole vehicle turns into shrapnel, or at least parts of the vehicle turn into shrapnel at that point. And if he's packed it with some ball bearings and other things to increase the shrapnel effect, you can have a, a very deadly weapon. It's hard to deal with because, of course, there are cars in the city of Mosul. Mosul is a, a pretty large city, certainly by Iraqi standards. It's about 800,000 people, give or take. And you have tens of thousands that have had to flee their homes, um, tens of thousands that have, with winter approach, uh, with winter underway, I should say, very little in the way of fuel, very little in the way of food. There's really no medical care to speak of. And there's a humanitarian disaster looming because you may have hundreds of thousands of civilians caught on the west bank of the Tigris River in this increasingly desperate resistance from these Islamic State fighters. And I would just say that, you know, the, the Iraqi government and its allies are in the midst of quite a test here. And the rest of Iraq and the rest of the Middle East and in some ways the world is watching this, although the rest of the world is not watching this with the degree of attention that I think they should or that they would. Um, this is 
this would be once they finally take back this city the most single crushing blow against the islamic state and the isis fighters are not in any position to do anything other than just increase the casualties of the iraqi government and achieve martyrdom now but what happens not just in the waning days of this battle with iraqi forces i mean the counterterrorism service which is the best of the best of the iraqi military those counterterrorism troops have taken an, uh, a beating taken very high casualties and doing a lot of the fighting you have shia militias that are around the city and providing security and securing the perimeter but they don't really want them in the midst of this Sunni majority city because of the sectarian tensions that would certainly flare up from that. And there are those in Mosul, there are Sunni Arabs in Mosul who are going to be very happy to see the Islamic State gone, but they don't want Shia militias, some of whom have blood of innocent Sunni Arab Iraqis on their hands already. They don't want them walking the streets of Mosul. So the, the way this is conducted with weeks, maybe months, but with weeks left to go in this fight, it'll probably be a few months, matters. Uh, every aspect of this fight matters because this is primarily a military operation, but it is really also part of a larger propaganda and public perception war. You see, this is about much more than just retaking a city from ISIS. The, the campaign in Mosul is the centerpiece of a much-needed uh, national narrative narrative of sectarian unity they have to bring together all these different factions sunni shia and kurd and in mosul this is the mobilization of those forces together in one common purpose driving the islamic state out and you finally have a situation where they are working in concert there has been uh, maybe a minimum is too strong too strong a way to put it but there's certainly not been a, a large there have not been large-scale sectarian uh, reprisals there haven't been a lot of heavy casualties taken in sectarian fighting against the different forces so they are focused on taking out uh, isis and prime minister abadi has this unwieldy coalition of kurd sunni and shia and they're all allied in this patriotic effort to get the islamic state to get off of Iraqi soil. That's really what this boils down to. They can push them across the border, push them out or kill them in the case of Mosul. They, a lot of them are dead-enders. They're not going to go willingly. They want to go down in a martyrdom oper operation of one kind or another. But the success of this indigenous, multi-sectarian Iraqi force uh, is in, in liberating Mosul from ISIS occupiers this is the kind of political capital the government in Baghdad is really going to need. And if a Trump administration is going to create a much more hopeful and stable Iraq than what we've seen in recent years under the Obama administration, there's a real moment of opportunity here. But it's an opportunity that could quickly slip out of uh, the Iraqi government's grasp if they don't seize it. And I don't get the sense, and look, I'm not involved in discussions at the Pentagon or CIA or White House, obviously, so I don't know. I don't get the sense the administration has much of a focus on this at all. Now, certainly the commanders on the ground on the U.S. side and, and working with allied commanders have an excellent view of this, and they have their uh, they have their mission. They understand what they're trying to accomplish there. But this is where the vision of a particularly strong Secretary of Defense and also a, an adept commander-in-chief 
could be really valuable. So the way that this coalition of generally unwilling partners, Sunni, Shia, Kurd, comes together in, in the latter stages of the Mosul operation when the fighting is going to get more intense. And then, of course, after that, you're going to have the hold part of the clear and hold operation where some force is going to be walking the streets dealing with continued attacks from ISIS fighters who have melted back into the civilian population. Although that's not going to be as easy as some might think. The overwhelming sentiment you get from all the reports of the population in Mosul is that they hate the Islamic State, they want them gone, and anyone who was walking around with a beard and an AK and part of the tyranny of ISIS in Mosul is going to have a very hard time turning around and all of a sudden pretending that everything's fine and he's just another guy. There are some tragic outcomes from this, though, that are also plausible. Uh, the urgency of the Islamic State threat has eclipsed these sectarian tensions uh, momentarily, uh, but there are plenty of ways for the Mosul operation and its, uh, its immediate aftermath to turn into a sectarian nightmare. Uh, you have these popular mobilization units, which are the Shia militias. PMUs, are, it's a rebranding, and it's quite a rebranding of Shia militias. Uh, and they include militants that have been accused of war crimes in previous cases. So what happens with them after ISIS is gone is going to be an essential data point. And uh, that's going to really play a large role in determining the success or failure of this operation over the long term. So if there are anti-Sunni reprisals or if entire blocks are callously raised with heavy weapons, uh, Iraq's sectarian divide could turn into a chasm very quickly. Now, these are the notes I've been taking for myself, by the way. I'm sharing some of this with you because I'm thinking about writing a broader analytic piece on Mosul, and I wanted to make sure I really hit all the different facets of it. Uh, this is a much more important story than you'd gather from watching the news, and what's going on in Afghanistan is also not getting coverage. And I'm telling you, they're going to start covering Afghanistan when it's obvious that there's big problems there. It's falling apart. And they're going to and immediately the, the silence that they've had in the media on Afghanistan for a while will be a means of uh, sh a means of transferring any blame for Afghanistan to Trump. It'll be oh well, look, Afghanistan's falling apart on Trump's watch. It's been allowed to deteriorate under Obama's watch without a peep from the media. And with Mosul, I think they're waiting to see this play out because they're they're hoping that there's an opportunity here if things go bad with the stabilization operation of Mosul after they've cleared out ISIS, they're going to want to put this at the Trump administration's doorstep and say that this is Trump's fault and that he's a inept and incompetent commander in chief. So the media is playing games with all this stuff, but I want to keep you up to speed on it as much as I can. It's important to watch. The fight against ISIS is very much still underway. Uh, team phone lines open 888-900-3393. Be back in just a few. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
Team, I, I mentioned what's going on in Afghanistan. You've got the Taliban just a uh, just yesterday releasing this letter that it that they're telling Trump it's time for the U.S. to leave Afghanistan. This is from ABC News. The letter emailed to journalists was written on behalf of the so-called Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Uh, Zabihullah Mujahid, the Taliban spokesman, warned Trump that peace will be elusive as long as foreign troops are on Afghan soil. And he, he adds that independence from foreign dominance is the only asset that an impoverished nation like Afghanistan truly has. So this was written in English, Pashto, and Dari, two of the biggest languages, the two biggest languages spoken in Afghanistan are Dari and Pashto. And it went on at some length about Afghanistan's history and invading armies. And, uh, the position of the coalition in Afghanistan is not good right now. Uh, there are a lot of problems. The Taliban has control outside of the cities in the south, uh, so in provinces like Helmand and Kandahar, and you're just not hearing about it. Uh, they're doing this pretty quietly because they realize that with a new administration coming in here, they want to create both facts on the ground and then create their own perception for what Afghanistan is, what's going on in Afghanistan right now. So there are some very serious issues that are coming up right now. I, I don't know what the Trump plan for Afghanistan is going to be. If we pull out U.S. troops right now, this thing is going to go to hell in a handbasket very quickly. And it's a, it's a major concern. Obama did not end the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan. He just did a bad job managing both of them. And now here we are finding ourselves facing many of the same problems that were around eight years ago, except we've had eight years and taken a lot of casualties, particularly in Afghanistan. All right, team, we've got more coming up. I'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. 